Good morning. It is Monday, September 7th, 9.24 a.m. I hope y'all had a good week. I know I did. It was very, very busy. Oh my God. It was a really exceptionally busy week. Um, You know, just a lot of the same, but super ramped up. The shop was really... It was, it was, I hate saying the word really, really, really all the time. Um, But the commerce just kept coming. So I'm grateful. Got a lot of shipping to do today. I know it's Labor Day, but I'm just going to pack the shipments at least so I can get a leg up on things for tomorrow. Um, I have like a regimented schedule surprise surprise (laughs) but yeah I've got a regimented schedule of like places that I go and things I do and places I source from on certain days so I don't want to cut that to cut into my sourcing time on Tuesday because of the staggered shipping you see for me a holiday is stressful (laughs) um because it throws off my work balance um but maybe my work is already out of balance you know what I mean because it's a lot of I'm doing a lot of work it's a lot of fun so I'm grateful for that so I'm bringing you the conclusion to uh Portland been racist this is uh part five of my five-part series called Portland Been Racist. Uh, If any of you guys are first-time listeners, uh, if you feel like it, go back and listen. Um, But in a way, it doesn't really matter if you listen to the other ones prior um, because Portland's still racist. Actually, the whole country's racist. But uh, Portland has a particular um, racist leg up because they enacted so much legislation and because it was also the site of so much quote white discovery and white development and displacement and removal and erasure of non-white people people of color so let's get started um i am going to touch on two different communities that were affected by Portland's racist laws and behavior in the civic sense as well. Um, I'm going to start with the removal and displacement of indigenous people, and I'm going to end with the exclusion of the Chinese. Okay. One moment. All right. So, Portland sits on the land on the traditional lands of indigenous people who were forcibly removed to the Grand Ronde Reservation in 1854. It is a confederation of Chinook tribes, including the Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas. Tualatin, Kalapoya, and Molala tribes. Okay? It's a nation of people. It is the original population 
of people. The true nation of people. Before they were violently and horribly removed. So, in the winter of 1856, even more Native people were forced to leave Oregon. And they were forced to march over 263 miles in the winter to the Grand Ronde Reservation under U.S. military force. And this became known as the Grand Ronde Trail of Tears. Okay. So they were basically marched out in the dead of winter. I don't understand. That's one thing that blows my mind about the Trail of Tears. And this is not the only Trail of Tears. But when they forced these, these Native people to leave, why do they make them do it in winter time? Why do they do that? I had never understood that. <laughs> it's just, it's ridiculous. In, in return, once the, once the land had been cleared of indigenous people, the whiteies dammed the river. And so it destroyed the natural run of the salmon. The salmon run is where salmon, they breed, they have their breeding cycle in the water because, you know, they're, they're fish. Um, so they, that is the main source of food for the Chinook people. Um, and so when you disrupt the flow of nature in such an egregious way, the salmon get confused because they have their own instincts that are led by the water and therefore they find other places to breed. So that forced any remaining natives to either assimilate into white society, which was torturous and dehumanizing and degrading and erasing, or they had to move. Now Portland has the ninth largest population of Native people in America. But they have a disproportionately huge amount of poor people living in the inner city. Many of them came back to Portland in the 1950s when a federal policy to terminate the road of termination and relocation destroyed their tribal status. So that means they were on the they were on a small all of the Chinook peoples were forced onto a small relatively small reservation a small bit of land and then developers took that away from them the government seized their remaining land and the natives received a one-way ticket to to Portland they're like here get on the bus go so even though they weren't forced in the winter to walk 263 miles to their new, quote, home. It was kind of the modern equivalent of that. 
And corporations wanted to privatize that last little bit of of reservation land. They wanted to privatize that and develop it. In 1958, the Chinook people were finally acknowledged as the rightful heirs to their traditional land. So a little over 100 years later, they're like, okay, it's yours. You know, it's, it's just every time signatures matter because each year that goes by is another slap in the face. And in 2001, the Chinook were finally given formal status as a federally recognized Indian nation. But guess what? Under the George W. Bush administration, they revoked that status only 18 months later. So in, I guess, around 2003, they're like, nah, we're going to take that status back. Another slap in the face. That's kind of like when someone walks back an apology. I don't know if you guys have ever had that happen to you when someone apologizes to you and then they come back and they tell you, actually, I'm not sorry. I have had that happen to me before and it is infuriating. It's so infuriating. They give you, like, they try to give you talking points about why you don't deserve an apology. (laughs) Uh, It's... Why I don't talk to some people. Um, Anyway, it's something that I think we can all relate to in some way. It's, I I found out another interesting clue too. Um, When Lewis and Clark came here and Sacagawea, who is Chinook, led them on the expedition, made sure that they didn't starve to death, which... That shows her how, how kind and how good she was and how good her people were. Um, they stole her canoe. I just found that out this morning. They stole her canoe. And so almost 200 years later, um, a descendant of, I believe, Lewis, Meriwether, was it Mary, or anyway, I think of Lewis, gave a canoe back to the Chinook people. I bring this up because as civilians, as Americans, as citizens, we can make reparations. We can make reparations every day. We can do the work. We can look back and see what our ancestors have done and we can find ways to give back. The resources are out there. If that woman could give, learn that information, acknowledge what happened, acknowledge what her ancestors did to the original people of this land and could take the time to acknowledge that it happened and do something to write it. The Chinook people may not need a canoe now, but it's the symbol of it. It's the symbol of it, that what it represents. And it's the honoring of, of the Chinook. And it's the acknowledgement of what was done. Not the erasure, not the sugar coating of Sacagawea 
just giving of herself completely readily and happily and allowing Whitey to take from her. Um, remember they had the Sacagawea coin and I believe it was a dollar and it was gold in color and it was small, like a quarter and people would say derogatory names, what they would call, call the coin. It sounds like, um, like a lady big, Bigfoot name, you know, um, not really taking it seriously, not taking her seriously. That's a, that's a symbol of the collective consciousness and the collective unconscious. It's a small thing, but what if that was you? What if those were your people? You never know because our nation is so assimilative and many people have had to force themselves to pass and to blend in to white society, you don't know who you're talking to when you say something that could be perceived as offensive or that is offensive or that is derogatory or that is racist. You don't know. You may not know that you are speaking to a person with native blood. Indigenous, you might be speaking to an indigenous person or a black person. Now I'm going to touch on the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. The first Chinese immigrants to Oregon arrived in the 1850s. They primarily worked as miners in southern and northeastern Oregon. As Portland grew, it attracted more Chinese immigrants, and by 1900, there were more than 10,000 Chinese out of a population of 413,500. So, let's see, 10,000 is roughly 2.5% of the population. That's no small potatoes. One moment. Of course, Whitey didn't like that. So in 1882, the Congress passed the Geary Act, which expanded and renewed legislation suspending Chinese immigration. Um, They had had a previous law where only 15 Chinese people were allowed per, per ship carrying immigrants. Um, this required Chinese people to carry special identification uh, upon entering and leaving the country and re-entering. Um, it created a a bachelor society amongst the Chinese settlers and miners because they were not allowed to bring their wives and families. So they often had to go back to to China if they wanted to see their family at all. And many didn't get to see their family ever again. Um, and you know what? There is something to be said for the woman's touch. You know what I mean? Have you ever seen a cute guy and you're like, wow, I like his shirt. He's so well-groomed. 
look at him go. And then you see him, whoop, there's his wife. <laughs> well, he probably wouldn't be that cute or well-groomed unless he had somebody caring for him and telling him what not to wear. And that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. The kindness and the, and the sense of home that a woman will bring, especially when you have moved to a faraway land and you're just by yourself, that companionship, that commiseration, the teamwork, the sex, I'm going to say it, the sex, those are all important things <laughs> um, and just gone. So that it's very alienating to not be allowed to love, to not have, to not be able to create a family. So when you die, no one's, no one, you know, it might be months until your, um, till your relatives find out that you've died if they're in China. And then there's no one to perpetuate the family line. One moment. The Exclusion Act remained on the books until 1943. And that was only because then China was our ally in World War II. That means it would have just kept on going. And it was a reluctant, um, it was a re reluctant revision. Let's put it that way. In Oregon, Chinese residents were prohibited from voting, holding public office, attending public schools, serving on juries, entering professions, and becoming naturalized citizens. Even today, some Chinese Americans will not talk about how their family came over to America for fear of deportation because of the current climate and the current lack of welcome towards immigrating people. Despite the exclusion, Portland still had the country's lar second largest Chinatown. I guess second only to San Francisco's. In order to level the playing field economically, because, you know, heaven forbid if somebody come to America and actually make something of themselves and live the American dream if they're not white, heaven forbid, taxes were levied against Chinese laborers. And this was designed to exclude them from settling and it discouraged immigrants. Oregon taxed Chinese merchants $50 a month. So that's equivalent to $1,150 today. Okay. Um, Chinese miners were forced to pay $50 a year just to remain in Oregon. So this is on top of paying the people who helped them immigrate there. So when you, when you would immigrate to a country, you usually have a broker to manage the papers, um, secure your passage, sponsor you if need be. And you'd have to pay them back because sometimes maybe you didn't have the money right up front, but you knew a family member that they had helped and... Maybe that family member who had immigrated here needed help earning money to send back to the family. So you would come here and help them. But you'd have to pay back your broker. Um, you'd have to send money to your family because that's the whole point of why you came to America is to have a better life for your family, even if you couldn't see them. 
And then you had to pay the state of Oregon $50. And this included a poll tax. Even though the Chinese were prohibited from voting, owning property, or marrying whites, or testifying in court, they still had to pay a poll tax. That's ridiculous. Um, there's one other thing, too. Remember when I was talking about how Chinese people were prohibited from testifying against a white person in a court of law? That's serious. Because when you deal with, when you have racists around you, they commit crimes against humanity. That's what racism is, and that's what racist people do to those who they look down upon. So I'm offering a trigger warning. I'm going to briefly touch upon the Snake River Massacre, and I'm bringing it up as an example of what happens when you do not have the same civil rights as your fellow Americans, okay? The Snake River Massacre was a very gruesome murder of 34 Chinese miners on the Oregon side of Hell's Canyon. They were found hacked to death and the white murderers, there were six of them, and one of the murderers was only 15 years old. This happened, I believe, in 18... 1887. Yes, sorry. Um, th- so this was only a few years after the Chinese Exclusion Act. The murderers were found not guilty, despite the confession. It was, it happened in the spring. The, the miners had found between them, one, one group of the miners, it was like two groups that were kind of in tandem with each other, that knew each other. One group of miners had $5,000 worth of gold in 1880s money, and the other one had about $50,000 worth of gold. Um, they, the two groups of miners were red were led by Chepo and Li She. Um, and these miners were descended upon by this band of gangsters who had kind of a, they were like petty thieves. They weren't very good at mining. mining and so um, they would just steal horses. They would you know, steal grain, anything that they could. They would tell lies. They would swindle people. They would swindle each other. And they, they hacked them to death with axes. They hacked 34 Chinese men to death. And since it was springtime and the river was carrying, because of the flow of the river, after they threw the body parts into the water, Parts of these men kept showing up for months and months and months. Still, despite a confession much later, a deathbed confession of one of the murderers, none of them were apprehended, none of them were brought to justice because they were white men. And Chinese men could not testify against them. 
even when the evidence kept showing itself in the water. That is a violation of humanity. It's an embarrassment, not just an embarrassment. It's a toxic, abusive relationship with the land. It's a disrespect for the water. It's like this grassroots pollution of the water, throwing cut up dead dead people in the water, rerouting the salmon run, confusing the confusing nature, destroying whole towns. I don't know if you remember in I believe it was the first episode when that very dam that those developers broke um, built, it broke in, eight, in 1948 and destroyed an entire town of black people. And those bodies were washed up in the water and those bodies were disappeared and deliberately ignored and unaccounted for and denied life and death. Portland been racist. America been racist. Let's not forget. Let's work and let's offer reparations when and where we can. As an individual, you can make a difference in people's lives. You can bring healing to this world. I believe in the goodness of American people. I believe we do have goodness within us. It is time to pull that and give it and show it. This is not the time to dig in our heels and insist that racism is over and that The problem is fixed. It's not fixed. And also, reparations will not erase the damage done. They will just heal. They will will begin to heal the pain that has been caused. But it will not take away what has happened. And when you give reparations, don't expect a thank you. I hope you all have a great Labor Day. I want to thank everyone for their labor. I want to thank the essential workers for their tireless effort and bravery. I want to thank all the doulas and herbalists and light workers and tarot readers and palm readers and psychics and prayer warriors. I want to thank all those people for their work in the spirit world. I want to thank all of the Black, Indigenous, people of color, especially femmes, femme by POC, for their emotional labor that they have given so freely, especially this year, and so generously 
I want to thank everyone who has given me a space to work and who support my work. So y'all have a good time today. Enjoy it. I'm going to hot foot it on down to Gus's market. I am, I am, okay, let me tell you something right now. I am, I am naked and I am freaking sweating like a stuck pig. I didn't want the, the fan to mute the voice. Um, but yeah, I sweat from under my, from my ribs. And so it's just like sweat. That's the only, that's the main place I sweat from. Anyway, so I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to hot foot it over to Gus's, get something to barbecue. Going to go down to Kirsty's for a little bit. And then I'm going to go to Ann's. Um, but yeah, I love y'all. And I hope you guys have a great Labor Day. I will check in with you next week. Take care.